Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, it's past time to get organized to make sure our votes get counted in November. We'll talk about addressing voter and census suppression. The job support was released today, and once again, African Americans are at the bottom of the recovery effort. We'll break it down. A disproportionate number of black and Latino children are dying from COVID-19. We'll talk with a pediatric specialist about why. A man sentenced to life in prison in Louisiana for selling 30 dollars worth of marijuana now will go free we'll tell you 
his story. Oprah is demanding justice for those who killed Breonna Taylor. She has put up 26 billboards all across Louisville. The Virginia man has pleaded guilty to threatening to burn down a black church. In victory for another young progressive running against an establishment candidate, this time in Tennessee. Folks, wait until you, I tell you how much money she raised compared to him. And UCLA is considering terminating two scholarships connected with the Confederate Heritage Group. We'll talk about the Navy SEALs suspending their support of the National Navy SEAL Museum over a video that went viral involving Colin Kaepernick. Plus, we have a new batch of anti-Trump ads. Oh, wait till we see and show you these doozies. It's time to ring the funk on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the find. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. You see it right there, 87 days until Election Day, but that's November 3rd. Remember, we have deadlines coming up when it comes to voter registration, when it comes to getting your ballots, when it comes to early voting. What we are focusing on is making sure you are fully prepared uh, to vote, to combat voter suppression that's been going on. Joining us right now is the head of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation, uh, Melody Campbell. We're going to talk about the issue of, uh, again, again, voter suppression, what's happening all across this country. Again, as you can see here, we want you to go to vote.org. Vote.org, where you can check your registration, register to vote. You can also get your absentee or your ballot in the mail, get election reminders, also polling place locator, and also register for the United States Census. All of that impacts us as African-Americans. Also, when it comes to the districts in terms of where we're operating in as well, census deals with reapportionment drawing of lines. All of those things matter when you talk about this election. And so this is critically important for us. We cannot procrastinate. We cannot wait. And so everybody who's out there, you must know your status right now. Make sure, and look, if, if you're unsure, if your name has been removed from the polls, just register again. There's nothing wrong with you registering again. We also want you to double check your information. That is, double. make sure your signature is checked. Your address is checked. Everything lines up because we do not want them disqualifying your ballot for you to be able to vote. Every vote is going to count in the presidential, U.S. Senate, congressional, statewide, countywide, citywide races, judicial races, DA races. All of these are going to be on the ballot. And so we want to make sure that you are properly prepared for it. Rob Richardson is host of the Disruption Now podcast. Derek Holly, President, Reaching America and Political Analyst. Dr. Deombe Carter, yes, Howard sir. University, Department of Political Science. In a moment, we're going to have Melanie Campbell on. Dr. Uh, Dr. Carter, I want to go to you. Uh, again, what we're talking about here 
is being fully prepared because we see the games that have been going on. Remember in Ohio, it's why God took it all to the Supreme Court. The conservative Supreme Court ruled that Ohio could indeed purge folks from the rolls because he had not voted in uh, several elections. And so somebody may think out there that, hey, I'm still registered. No, I keep saying, and I don't even try it, I keep saying register every year so there are no excuses. Well, absolutely. I think what a lot of people forget is that you have to be vigilant about your registration. If you lived in my former state of North Carolina, your registration could be challenged by a neighbor. And you would never know because they don't forward that kind of information to a new dresser or something like that. So I would say to anybody, registration is something that you have to do often. Um, and it never hurts, you know, double check it, triple check it. As you said, in most places, you can go to your state board of elections online on your phone anywhere um, to double check to make sure, like you said, that all of your information is correct, um, that they have the right address. Um, if you're trying to get um, clarity, you're not sure, call them. Right. It is their job to make sure. And like you said, Roland, there is no problem with registering again. That is not illegal. I think a lot of people get gun shy and are afraid because they think that if they try to register multiple times, that that'll be read as fraud and that they'll be in some type of trouble um, for, you know, I don't know, attempting a registration or something like that. And this is the way that suppression works many times is a cooling effect. So it's not telling people that they can't register often. It's saying if you do try to register and your information isn't correct, this could be a felony. Well, I mean, that has a, a, a large um, a chilling effect on our communities, as we know, particularly for those who are returning citizens or those who may know um, others who've been incarcerated. Nobody wants to incur that. So a lot of people just say, well, I don't know, and I shouldn't do this again. But no, it is absolutely your right to figure out what your status is at any given time. And you can do that any day of the week you want to. Rob, you're there in Ohio, Rob. The case I'm referring to came out of Ohio. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. In Ohio, they want to be able to purge folks from the rolls. I, I, I still don't understand why in the hell you care if somebody did not vote in a couple of elections, but they might vote in the next one. But that's And then what happened after that? Uh, a number of uh, states led by Republicans began to purge people, hundreds of thousands of people from the voting rolls. And we saw what happened in Georgia. Greg Palace, we've had him on the show, broke down how many of those folks who were purged in Atlanta, purged in Georgia, had done nothing wrong. They, was, they were actually still registered, still at those addresses. That's why you can't trust last year, re-register to make sure you're registered this year. Yeah, well, I can I can answer it to you. I can answer it very quickly why they're doing that. You have a party that has <laughs> given up on trying to legislate. It's given up on trying to convince people. Instead, their whole focus is let's make up voter fraud. Voter fraud is a fraud. It does not exist. Essentially, you have a better chance of winning the lottery. So we can go out and win the lottery, and we have a better chance of doing that than getting away with voter fraud. It is made up. It's an attempt to have a talking point in order to suppress votes. But the only way to beat uh, to actually beat voter suppression is to great voter turnout. As you said, we have to be vigilant. We shouldn't have to be. Our rights should be guarded. Our rights should be protected. But again, right now you have a party that's in place, the Republican Party, that just believes that they need to do everything possible to restrict the amount of people that can vote. They are anti, they're being anti-American. It's anti-democratic. It's, it's, it's what you do when you don't have any good ideas. You just try to suppress people and take power. The, uh, this whole notion is very interesting. I was, I was reading a story, uh, 
in one of the magazines, Derek, where there was a, uh, in Wisconsin, there was a state official, state Republican, and uh, they were going back and forth. They kept yelling, voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. And he kept saying, can y'all please show me the proof? And then he put his staff on it. And the staff went out and they found one example. It was involving a Republican. And he was going, I'm sorry, what the hell is all this yelling of voter fraud? He said, you're, you're offering anecdotal evidence. He said, they offer it nothing. And, and this, was, this was a Republican in the legislature who said, I'm sorry, we as a party can't sit here and yell voter fraud with no evidence. Donald Trump had that commission. And the most hilarious thing, he put Chris Kobach over the commission demanding voter information from state secretaries of state. And what's crazy is he was head of the commission and he, as a secretary of state in Kansas, wouldn't even turn over his own information but criticize others. And so you keep hearing, and Trump keeps hollering, voter fraud, voter fraud, but there virtually is no voter fraud in America. Hey, Roland. <laughs> well, I do think there are some cases where voter fraud exists. Let me say that. I do. I just don't think it's a clean system. I don't believe that. However, I think a couple of things that you guys said that needs to happen. One, African-Americans, black people, we need to vote in every election. And I think that'll eliminate the, the, the whole thing of whether I'm registered or not if you get out and vote every single election. Because for whatever reason, we have this theory in our minds that local elections don't mean as much as a presidential election, so we don't go out and vote until every four years. We need to get that notion out of our heads, and we need to vote in every election. The second thing is, when we talk about this voter fraud and that kind of thing, and Roland, we talked about this on your show before, according to the Pew Research Center, in 2016, that was the lowest turnout in 20 years for African Americans. And so you can't win an election if you don't get out and vote. But, but here's so, the deal, yes. but, but, but Derek, but Derek, sure. we got to be honest. When we talk about what happened in 2016, we cannot ignore the reality that after the 2010 midterm elections, after what Obama wins in 2008, you saw Republican-led legislatures put a flurry of uh, things that made it more difficult. That's one. For instance, North Carolina is a perfect example. North Carolina had one of the lowest turnouts uh, in terms of the states prior to 2008. Folks went out there, bust their butt, got folks registered. All of a sudden, they went to uh, like 75, 78% went almost to the top. Obama won by 14,100 votes in North Carolina. After, after that, Republicans were like, oh, hell no. And then that's when they begin to target black voters. Limited early voting. In many cases, saying we're only going to have one early voting location for the first two weeks in the entire county. County served with 600,000 people. We know for a fact that in the last 10 years, again, starting in 2010, more than 1,000 polling locations have been closed all across the South. After Shelby v. Holder, whoo, that made it worse because you had no preclearance. You had nothing coming out of the Department of Justice. In fact, in 2016, the Obama Department of Justice approved the voter ID in Wisconsin. They said it was legal. They were still dragging their feet issuing them, a federal judge had to call governor, Republican Governor Scott Walker into the office to say, in this court, saying, what the hell? Why y'all dragging y'all feet with this? And so 
the, the we got to be honest here. This is this is a part of Republican strategy to depress turnout because we know why the history lower turnout. Republicans have a larger chance of winning higher turnout. Democrats have a greater chance of yep. winning. But, but they should just get better ideas instead of instead of trying to suppress votes. Come up with better ideas. Stop trying to stop trying to divide people of color. Like come up with some good ideas. Appeal to us instead of just having who you have in this in the current in the current White House. What they do is say, okay, we probably can't win that. We know we can't win with the rhetoric we have now. So let's just try to figure out how to get them not to vote, make it harder for them to vote, purge them from the rolls. Like I agree with what Derek says, we should vote more often, but we ought to have leaders that don't try to suppress votes either. We we could we need both to happen. Like we need responsible leaders, and we need leaders that are trying to bring forth good ideas that are not just trying to divide people that are not being anti-American. If we're all in this together, we're all supposed to be American. Why are you trying to take away the right to vote? Why are you making it harder to vote? I mean, you're doing that because you don't believe in the power of your own ideas. It's weakness. It's, it's a lack of leadership. Oh, that's true. I, I, I'm not disagreeing with anything that you said, y'all saying, but all of that could go away and be eliminated if folks get their butts out and vote. You wouldn't have to about, what, worry but, about the voter suppression, but, and you wouldn't have to worry about being purged if you got out and voted. But Derek, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. I just, that's what I just said, polling locations and stuff like that. And we know that that exists. Back in Georgia, in 2016, was it 18? They did shut down election places in Georgia. I mean, they did it. But the bottom line is for the purge, all that purging and stuff, if you get get out and vote, you have to worry about being purged. Okay, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true because, uh, and Matt, I want to bring in Melanie Campbell right here, National Coalition of Black Civic Participation. Perfect example, Melanie. We know for a fact that when when, uh, you had Governor Scott in Florida, they purged a number of people in Florida. When they went back and checked, those people had voted, they were eligible, had not moved. It was erroneous purging. Um, Roland, I was listening in, having a little uh, technical difficulties, so I heard some and some I didn't. But the bottom line is, uh, you have it right when you laid it out. Voter suppression um, for the Republican Party, this is just a fact, you know, I'm not being partisan. Uh, it's their strategy for victory. And so the reality is, even in uh, uh, the uh, 2018 election in Georgia, we know what happened uh, when you had some, a secretary of state who actually, uh, uh, before he even got on the ballot, had already started purging voters. It's part of a strategy. And so our history, as we just yesterday celebrated or commemorated in some ways because they've gutted it, the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and Congressman John Lewis and Dr. C.P. Vivian, who recently passed, who helped us get that vote, have to be really, um, it's, it's a nonpartisan reality that, that, that voter suppression is something that the Republican Party uses. We, it, 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 we don't need to have folks, and I'm not, no disrespect to, the, to our brother there, but the facts are the facts. It is their strategy. It has been their strategy. I've been doing this for 25 years, and I, and I know for a fact it's their strategy, so we have to push back on it, but it is part of the strategy and not try to debate what is reality. One of the things that, uh, Melanie, again, what, what I am trying to get people to do is say, okay, we get that's part of the strategy, but mm-hmm. then we still have to jump over those hurdles. And so yeah. my deal right now, it's August 7th. I'm saying to everybody who's watching, who's listening, who is also, I need them to check their family members and say, look, yeah. let's go through this. What are the rules in our state? Do you have to have a voter ID? 
If right. you have to have a photo ID, do you have it? If you don't, what's the process? Right now, let's not, let's, and I'm begging our people, the first thing is we got to get them registered first. We'll deal with the yeah. voting next, but if they ain't registered first, it don't matter what comes next. Well, Roland, come Monday, you know, you know, we, I wanted to start it sooner, but we pulled together the next phase of our unity campaign, and thank you for supporting. Oh, um, we'll start starting something called you are you vote ready, and that means make, do all the things that you're talking about. Um, make sure that you're registered to vote. If you voted every last election, check your voter registration status now while we have time. Um, make sure if, if you want to. Some, a lot of us are afraid to, but we got to really encourage our folks to use. Um, the early voting process through absentee balloting and, and uh, um, mail-in ballots where you can. And if you just can't do that, then get ready to vote. So are you are you vote ready is what we have to be. We have to ask our family and our friends, are you vote ready? Hey, check my own self. I got a ballot in the mail here in the, in, in, uh, in the state of Virginia, uh, Commonwealth of Virginia, but I got to double-check this, ap this application because the uh, Virginia League of Women Voters said there's some false mail-ins going out to get people to fill out these uh, um, applications, and guess what? Uh, black households. So we really have to get ready in a whole different way because we also have to make sure that we can vote safely, right? There's another shortage. Uh, we need poll workers and poll monitors. We have to help election protection. There's a 250,000. I know I heard you, and I thank you so much. August is the month to get ready to vote. So... Uh, Monday, we'll be launching this with several of our national organizations working together and our state leaders across the state, uh, across the country, and asking everybody, just grab, uh, take care of your household, take care of your friends and your neighbors, and we're going to turn out, and I think we still can uh, overperform, if you will, um, for this election, because we already know what's at stake. Our lives are at stake. Our children's lives are at stake. And so we have to be vote ready. So we say, are you ready to vote? And if you're not, get ready. And so when we talk about, again, that, that idea of being, uh, are you vote ready? I mean, it's re and, and I need people to understand, Melody, is that just because you might have a relative who's in Mississippi and you live in Virginia or you live in North Carolina or you live in Missouri, it doesn't mean what applies in your state applies in their state. Exactly. And that's why um, we partnered with uh, Vote.org um, and, and, and Power the Polls. Um, and, and that's where we can have the kind of information. We're working with Aphila Randolph Institute, National Urban League, Hip Hop Caucus, all of our National Action Network and many, many other organizations, our sororities. We're asking our fraternities, 100 Black Men of America. We're trying to pull that unity campaign together <coughs> for this, what we call the phase three and using August, the, 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 the again, Voting Rights Act month, uh, March on Washington month, uh, so, um, a suffrage month. My, August, uh, someone I heard say, uh, August is the second uh, uh, Black History Month as far as uh, the, the Voting Rights Act and um, uh, as well as the March on Washington uh, that we're working with Reverend Sharpton and, and others on. So it's just, it's just, it's just in, imperative. Normally, we're, we're all, many folks are vacationing, and some may still be doing that, but many folks are not. So it's an opportunity to, to take uh, the time to get ready to vote, because really, Roland, the voting starts beginning of September in many states. Uh, absentee ballots and uh, vote by mail, that process starts. So we have the month of September, uh, October, up through November 3rd to really vote. But we have to make sure that, again, get ready to vote. Are you vote ready is, is the key. All right, Melanie Campbell, we certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much.
you so much. All right, folks. Again, so as we talk about that, so I want you to, again, uh, go to vote.org. You can go to vote.org. You can check all of your information. You can check everything there. Go ahead and show it again. You see right there, 87 days, 6 hours, 32 minutes, 19 seconds until Election Day. But you don't have to wait. We must be in position uh, to vote when it comes to this election. And also keep in mind, we talk about even if you're going to vote by mail, let's say you don't want to put you say you don't want to put your application um, in uh, through the mail system. You want to ensure. Well, you get a check to make sure in your state, in your county, they have drop off locations where you can physically drop off your mail in ballot. And so. Uh, so we're going to be providing you all the information. So, for instance, we're going to be getting you, beginning on Monday, the registration deadline for every single state. We're going to do that. And then after we get past the registration deadline, then we're going to tell you exactly what are the deadlines when it comes to mail-in ballots. We're going to tell you the deadlines when it comes to witness early voting start in each one of these states because we must be fully prepared and engage in this election. One of the big issues that will take place in the election is the economy. Today, the monthly jobs report came out, and the economy added 1.8 million jobs in July, a, sl a sharp slowdown from June, and a small step for an economy that's still down 12.9 million jobs as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, the unemployment rate fell in all demographic groups, but remains the highest by far for black workers at 14.6%. Um, Rob, actually, I'm going to start uh, yeah, yeah, with you, Rob. Uh, I'll bring my guest on in a second. Uh, the Trump folks have sent an email out touting black numbers. Uh, but the reality is, if you study the numbers, under Obama, he leaves 7.7, 7, 7.2%. Then it drops down to 5.1%. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it goes up to uh, 17% uh, has now dropped two points. But the reality is for black people, these numbers right here show what happens when you have uh, a major impact like a recession or a pandemic, black people get hurt more than anybody else. There's no question about that, Roland. And what we've seen overall, everybody gets, gets hurt, but I want to uh, point to a trend. A lot of jobs have not come back from any recession. So all these recessions we go through, even when the recovery happens, uh, certain jobs don't come back, and African Americans tend to be focused in a lot of those jobs, jobs that can be replaced by automation, jobs that uh, are more uh, routine and manual labor. Uh, unfortunately, we're more overrepresented there. So uh, we've seen this trend. This trend is, and it's going to exacerbate now, now that we have COVID-19, and you and I have talked about this. This has been less of a disruptor. It's more, it's exposed and it's accelerated trends. So things are going to continue to move and, and accelerate and expose people that are not in the digital space that are not in this space, it, it becomes harder. So you're right, we're seeing this happen for there's a lot of structural reasons, no doubt about that, racism, things that have been uh, done over the years. But then we have to figure out for us, if I'm looking at us, we have to figure out how we get into the tech space, how we get into some of the, uh, and move on some of these opportunities because that that is our new frontier because even if we fix some of the White House, you know, no nobody's there coming to save us. What I appreciated about, what I appreciate about you, Roland, and what I saw you talk about when you pointed out Joe Biden and others spending on black media, you should point that out. Because guess what? Without black people, there is no Democratic Party. So they ought to spend some money, even if they don't—first of all, they do get a return, but they ought to spend money just because they don't have a party. I guarantee if black people dropped off by, like, 15 percent, Joe Biden loses, period, right? So, like, we should get some return for that. 
we should get some value. And you bring a you bring a you bring a huge presence. And it's not just you, but there's other black media, there's other consultants that 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 they should be investing mm-hmm. in, and that they do not. And so I do think that we have to look at this broadly. Uh, when we look at politics, we look at economics and really figure out how we organize. We talk about it often, having our third reconstruction. We should do that in this moment. I want to bring in uh, Benga Ajilore, senior economist for the Center for American Progress. Uh, to talk about this here. Um, uh, Benga, certainly glad to have you back on Roland Martin Unfiltered. I, every time I get an email from Paris Denard with the Trump campaign, I just have to laugh. So they sent out this uh, email this morning. President Trump's inclusive economy continues to work for the black community. And then they start touting uh, uh, his steadfast leadership has led to the black unemployment rate dropping yet again in July. Have they paid any attention to what's happened? Because the fact of the matter is, since October, the black unemployment rate up, 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 up. Up, up. Then it hits, of course, 17, 18 percent, and then, of course, is now. But it, it well, they're touting it dropping to 14.6 percent. And that's the thing about these numbers. I mean, yes, technically it dropped, but it dropped so little that it's almost negligible. And so, one of the things you have to look at is when you talk about these unemployment rates, especially by race, you have to compare it with other groups. So, yeah, unemployment rate went down to about 14.6 percent for African Americans, but for whites it dropped below double digits, down to 9%. For white women, it's down to 9.6%. For white men, 8.3%. Black men, it's about 15%. White, uh, black women, it's 14%. So is that something that you should tout? No, not at all. So again, so you're saying that when it came to white folks, it dropped double digits. For us... It dropped down to single digits. To, it, it dropped so. out of double to single digits... Yes. And for us, it went from what to what? 15.3% to about 14%. So it's still double digits. It's still almost 15%. It's still historically high. So I mean, we haven't so seen unemployment rates like that since Great Depression. So let's, so let's go, let's go back because I, I want people to understand numbers. So it was 15. Point what? So 15.3%. 15.3, and it drops to 14.6. Yes. That's not even one point. No. Okay. It's basically flat. Wow. And 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 and, and they actually are, are are touting that as something major. But I also want you to speak to this here because th- this is again, I deal in truth. And the reality is this here. If the numbers were true, I'll say it. This is what Paris Denard said. Says Trump built the greatest economy for black Americans with historic low unemployment once and he's doing it Again, let's deal with that. Donald Trump did not build the greatest economy. The, no. the, the economic resurgence was in full swing when he was inaugurated, correct? That's correct. I mean, it started, so we had the Great Recession in 2008, and from that point on, unemployment's been going down. And in fact, it's actually the longest recovery on history. So he just inherited a great economy up until we had the pandemic hitting. But even if you want to talk about the great recovery, if you're talking about African-Americans, it was double the whole time. So it's not like he could make that argument if the gap gap closed, but the gap didn't close. The gap still was double each time. And so we're seeing that again, that after this, you know, it's going down, but the gap between black and white unemployment rates are starting to increase once again. Well, and, and the point I'm also making with that is 
when you talk about that number, it was very high, obviously, because of what took place uh, under President George W. Bush. Obama inherits that. That black unemployment uh, is very high, March 2010, uh, that particular number. But by the time he leaves, it's down to 7.7, .7, almost 12 points knocked off. Trump comes in, it goes down to 5.1, down two points. So this whole idea that Donald Trump is the reason for black unemployment being so well, it's, it's clear. It dropped almost 12 points under Obama, and it's only been down two points under Trump, and th that they went down the two points, about 5.1, and now it's back up to 14. So really, under Donald Trump, since he has been president, black unemployment has actually doubled since he got inaugurated. Yeah, you can make that argument. <laughs> because the numbers are the numbers. He came in, it was 7.7. .7. Today it's 14.6. I guess where I, no, I went to school, that's like, seven, that's the times two. Just saying. Right. And the other thing is, there's nothing policy-wise that the administration can point to that says that it actually made it good for them. The only fiscal policy that they did was the tax cut, which doesn't help black people, it only helps wealthy white people. And so, and now you look at some of the policies now, there's nothing being done to handle this public health crisis. We had the CARES Act back in March, haven't seen anything since. The uh, House passed the HEROES Act on May 15th. We're almost two, maybe three months in, and we still haven't seen anything. And we still have these double-digit <coughs> unemployment rates for African-Americans, for Latinx populations, for Asians. You know, only people that have anything, uh, unemployment rate below 10% are white people. Wow. All right. Doc, I appreciate it. Thank you so very much for joining us. Go back, to, go, 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 back to, go back to my panel here. So, Derek, when you hear, again, Paris sent out these statements, how Trump built this economy, even you know that's BS. He did not build... He was literally handed an economy that was surging for a number of months before he even got in. Well, I just I just want to ask a question. At what point, because I just pulled up an article while he was talking, and it was from NBC, and it was from 2019. Right. And it said the lowest unemployment rate ever in history for African Americans. Right. It was down to, it was down to 5.5%. Right. Lowest in history. So I guess my question is, this man was elected, Trump, in 2016. Right. This article was published in 2019. Right. Three years after he's been in office. At what point does he get credit in his administration for the economy? Here's my question. What was it when he came in? What, what do you mean, what was it coming in? What was, the black, what was the black unemployment rate when he got inaugurated? Oh, I, didn't, I didn't look at those numbers. I just pulled that number right there. No, no, no. no but I, I, think I, 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 no. I think it said 7.7. Yes, it was 7.7. And it went down to what? To 5.5. Which is a drop of two points, correct? Correct. Okay. And that still means that that black unemployment rate was still that much higher than that of whites, correct? Yeah, So, So, no, 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 no. But here's my whole point. Oh, my whole point. He inherited one that was at 7.7 for black people. It goes down to 5.5. Who gave him the surging economy? What do you mean who gave him the surging economy? No, 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 no. What, what, no, did, 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 no, 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 no,
just start improving when he came in or had it been improving for six years? I'm saying my question is, at what point does he get credit for his administration? No, 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 wait, 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 it said 14. The dude just said it was at 14, 13%. It's at, it's at 14.6%. So, if he came in at 7.7 and it's now at 14%, does he also get the blame for it doubling? Yeah, let's give him the Hold on, Rob. Hold on, Rob. Rob, 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 Rob. One second. Derek, he does, he get the, does he get the blame? Does he get the blame yeah. for it doubling? Absolutely. Okay. Rob, go ahead. No, that was my point. I was going to give Trump all the credit. He's, he, he inherited a good economy and has managed to destroy it. So, yes, I give him the credit. This is his economy. He's running away with it. I don't think it's the right statement to say he, he destroyed it. He, he, he destroyed it. He definitely it. did. Hold on. I'm going to tell you why he did. Because he decided to deal with the, the COVID-19 as, as something that wasn't real. He didn't have a coordinated response. He didn't have a strong response in terms of actually uh, focusing on making sure we were supporting people, supporting workers. All of it was a game to him. He and so a lot of damage happened. So yes, he is the leader. He uh, he he gets he's accountable for this. That is my point. And 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 a lot of this has to do with his lack of leadership. Period. And also, can I add to the the employment sectors where blacks are overrepresented, like sales, like administrators, um, like government jobs, like government and, exactly. jobs. I mean, a lot of those people, food service, right? All of those positions that evaporated, right? When COVID-19 became um, much more prominent. And again, as Rob said, we had an administration that wanted to play political football with people's actual lives. So yes, he can take credit for that, that two-point drop-off in, in unemployment, but he can also take credit for it doubling. And not to mention just the economy uh, unemployment uh, for black folks, also the deaths of black folks that happened on his watch as well. So he can take credit for all of that. So this is what I want people to go, go to my iPad, please. I just want people to see this particular chart right here. This is the chart right here, okay? I'm gonna scroll over if I can, and you will see in this chart right down here, um, it goes January 2009, 12.7, going up 13.7. It went all the way up, uh, this, is, this is black. It went all the way up to 16.8, and then it went goes back up to 15, then all of a sudden, Y'all see, see, I, I want everybody to see this right here. I want everybody to see, let me do right here. I want everybody to see what that number looks like because let me, let me go ahead and reset it because uh, I want, I want y'all to see this is important. Y'all see right over here? This here, these are the Obama years. Down, 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 down. And then all of a sudden you get to, you get to 17, okay? These are the beginning of the Trump years. You see that big-ass line that jumped up? That right there, Trump also has to accept. And that's the thing. They don't want to accept that part. That's the thing, Derek. Here's the deal. If you're going you go, to you go accept the good, you got to accept the bad. I mean, that's all I'm saying. They don't want to do that, though. They, I agree, bro. That, that don't look good at all. <laughs> no, it don't. No, it don't. And in fact... That line 
And in fact, that line uh, over there jumped up, uh, jumped up higher than I think it actually jumped up higher than in the way this this chart is a little hard. To, is uh, it jumped to 16.8? That's actually higher than, or maybe it tied. Then it actually tied the the high point of Obama's presidency. Black unemployment was six. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just giving. I want our audience to have the information. The highest point under Obama's presidency, March 2010, it was at 16.8. It dropped to 7.7 .7 by the time he left. The lowest point of Trump's presidency, it was actually 5.1, I think, 5.5, uh, 5.5, yeah, 5.5, and the highest is 16.8. So the net effect of Donald Trump on black people, Derek. The net effect of the Trump presidency on black people is that our unemployment rate has doubled under Donald Trump. That's the net effect. That's the net effect. And But I would just look at to say that the COVID, man, I think we all would agree on this panel, it has exposed just black people in general. That's why even when we start talking about, you know, kids going back to school, I just... I of just, course. It, it, just, it hurts me that some of these kids are going to get left behind with this whole virtual thing. And I realize you got to be safe and keep them home, but damn, we're going to continue to fall But, but wait, but wait, but hold up, though. But hold up, though. Hold up, though. Hold up, though. But, but here's the deal, though. And here's the thing. I'm not saying it's... I'm not saying at all. Let me be real clear with people. I am not saying that it is a good thing that coronavirus took place. What I am saying is that now white folks in America are seeing the reality of what it means to be black. They are seeing higher death rates. They are seeing the impact on black businesses. They are seeing the impact on black kids in school. Can't nobody white sit here and deny what has actually happened to black people historically because what COVID-19 has absolutely exposed all of that, Rob. I agree. It's not only has it exposed that, so it's, it's exposed how horrible of a leader we have because that's what a crisis does. It'll either ex it'll expose or it will exaggerate the best characteristics and the worst, and we've seen that. But it's also but it's also exposed America and how bad we have been in terms of preparing. It's exposed the fact that we haven't invested in digital infrastructure. We should have broadband and Wi-Fi built all across this country. We should have that. But we don't have that, so it's exposed that. So, so people that don't have that, just like Derek said, are being left behind. It's exposing the fact that we haven't invested like we need to as a nation. It's exposed the fact that we don't focus on workers. If you look at every other country, who is, they are now recovering from COVID-19. We are now exceptional in a bad way. We're not recovering for all types of reasons. One, we didn't take it seriously. But then two, how we responded, we, we didn't respond by making sure we helped every single worker. There's a debate about that right now in, 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 in Europe and every other place. They made sure every worker was reimbursed, period. In America, we had a long debate about it. And they were giving money to people like the L.A. Lakers and this business here and huge <laughs> multinational corporations, ones that didn't need it. So we have the wrong focus in America. It's exposed, really, the lack of leadership in America as a whole. But we really have a really bad one in the White House. In fact, folks, let's talk about where we are. As of today, there are four million eight hundred and two thousand four hundred and ninety one cases of COVID-19. Fifty three thousand six hundred eighty five of those cases are new. One hundred fifty seven thousand 
631, actually, actually we've now crossed 160,000 deaths. 1320 are new. Now, folks, here's what's scary. A disproportionate number of non-white children are dying from the virus, according to data released in an internal memo from the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Nationwide, the number of COVID-19 cases among people under the age of 18 from March 1st to August 3rd were 40% Hispanic, 34% white, 19%, excuse me, 40% Hispanic, 34% black, 19%, um, uh, actually, of those numbers, I've got 40% Hispanic, 34% white, 19% black. I think those numbers are reversed. We need to double check that. The ethnicity breakdown of those patients who die from the disease, okay, this is who died. Okay, so the first, the first number were those who under the age of 18 diagnosed. 40% Hispanic, 34% white, 19% black. Those diagnosed. Now, those who have died, 38% Hispanic, 34% black, 25% white. That means that among Hispanics, 40% diagnosed of the deaths, 38% Hispanic. Of those who, who got it, 19% were, 34% were white, yet 25% died who were white. So that is, it was a drop. Black people, fewest number of black children diagnosed at 19%, 34% of black kids died. Joining me to talk about the crisis, Dr. Dan, uh, uh, first of all, Dan Fabui, a pediatric emergency med medicine specialist in Maryland and an Obama administration biodefense appointee. Uh, doc, glad to have you uh, here, uh, Dr. Fabui, Fabui. This is, to look at these numbers and to see that white children, higher rate in terms of getting it, but the lowest, the second highest rate who get it, but the lowest rate among those who die, and to see black children, the lowest number who diagnosed, but the second highest number who died, that is shocking. Yeah, um, thanks for having me, Roland. Um, yeah, so the, the data, we're still learning a lot about um, the impact on children and the impact on our community in general, both adults and kids. Um, I think one of the studies uh, that's been impactful that recently came out in addition was at one of my uh, former institutions where my colleagues there uh, looked at a thousand kids actually um, that were referred um, by actually a physician or because they were exposed to um, a high-risk target as in somebody who had COVID diagnosed and was sick were referred to this off-site uh, basically a site to get tested. Um, in that study they actually found that approximately one out of every five patients actually that presented to that site in the District of Columbia, which represents the DMV area, um, actually had um, tested positive. Of those numbers that were looked at, um, of that 20%, when you break it down of those who were positive, um, you found that there was a discrepancy um, in terms of racial and socioeconomic disparity with regards to Hispanics having six times more likely to have a positive test as opposed to their white counterpart. And uh, for African-Americans, it was, uh, children was about four times um, as uh, likely to have a positive test than their white counterpart. So this shows kind of uh, what the discrepancy in the area is. And that doesn't mean that um, it's just the children, the same disparity data we found in adults 
but this has now clarified the fact that uh, we kind of knew this, but it has documented that there are some racial disparities, not just in the adult population, but now is affecting our children. And we need to make amends to kind of fix those things or at least uh, account for that. Bear in mind that this study also actually um, was a study that was done uh, early on um, in the coronavirus uh, pandemic that began. So there were stricter rules in place at this time. So a doctor actually had to refer you to the site or you had to have the guidelines which were out there, which was like you had a fever, cough, and exposure to somebody who was sick or recent travel. Now those guidelines have relaxed because it's widespread. So imagine if that test was done actually during this time period, we'd probably see a higher, even more prevalence um, incidence of that case. The other issue that we're looking at is obviously now all of a sudden school. And now we're talking about in an environment where parents, if the kids go back, parents can't control that. Parents can't, look, look I, have, I have twin nieces, okay, 16 years old. And the reality is, my wife and I, we control who comes in our home. We control where they go. We control who they visit. We control everything about that. Once they leave our home and go back into the school, we can't control another kid wearing masks, whether they're washing, whether they actually practice, practice, practice social distancing. And now we got to completely trust that my nieces are going to say, hey, I need you to back up, social distance, whatever. And now, look, you're now talking about, and a lot of schools are not even prepared to have all of the different things in place when it comes to testing people, checking people. Look, you got a Georgia superintendent and just suspended a kid who took photos of a packed hallway and the Georgia superintendent actually said, well, um, we can't enforce masks. And I'm like, but if you ban kids from smoking, you damn sure know how to enforce that. If you ban, you know how to enforce dress codes, you know how to enforce hair length, all that, but you trying to tell me you can't enforce a mask? Come on. No, real talk. You, you hit the nail on the head. Those are real issues. Um, all the schools really need to um, get their act together as best as they can. Now, there are some limitations. Let's let's just call a spade a spade. Um, and we need to empower our your audience and our community in general to be able to know how to make a decision. Am I actually sending my kids to school? I'm a father, too. I have three. Um, and I think that some of the factors are, or that people can actually look at are test positivity rate. You can look that up. It's very accessible. John Hopkins has a website. You can look at the D.C. Department of Health, Maryland Department of Health, Virginia, whichever state you're in, you can look at all those online. So your positivity rate should be less than 5%. Ideally, you want it 1% or less. New York is a classic example. Theirs is around 1%. D.C. is about 1.6%, 1.4% um, looking at the latest data. But even with those numbers, that will actually at least begin to help you have a discussion around, okay, am I going to send my kids to school? The other part is the school's responsibility, which you, you alluded to, Roland, which is basically, hey, everybody should be wearing masks, faculty, staff, students. It should be mandatory. If it's not mandatory at any of those institutions, I'm not considering it as a parent. I don't think you should be. Um, I think if that's in place and then the testing and turnaround time of the testing is another thing. We've had a lot of lag in testing results due to reagents, due to whatever the reasons. There are many things. But now, actually, one of the places that's really been good with really testing is uh, D.C. They've improved their testing. But the question is, are still the turnaround times to get in the results. 
Then you ask the school the other question. What are your policies in place in terms of how do you notify families and parents? They've, they're good at uh, being able to notify parents on certain things. So have they done this before? Not all administrators understand the pandemic. They're trying to digest all that information while they figure out what's going on with the children and all those things. But there are certain nuances. So do you have a public health or a health expert or specialist at the school that they've plugged in with or with the uh, local Department of Health or Community Department of Health and how they can send kids to get tested or how that all works together. That has to be done. And then what happens when you have a positive case? Do you quarantine just that student? Do you send other kids home? Those things they need to answer and be able to have a plan that's solid in place. Dr. Dan Fabui, we certainly appreciate it, man. Thank you so very much. My pleasure. Uh, Dr. Carl, I want to go to you. You, of course, you, you professor, Howard University. Uh, Howard's plan is... Is, is sort of this augmented plan. They're not going completely online. Uh, talk about that again, how, um, how y'all are having to deal with this. And obviously, you're dealing with college students. You're dealing with adults. It's just a whole different ballgame. We're talking about elementary kids, junior high school, and high school. Well, you would hope it would be a different story, but the truth is we're talking about <laughs> young people who haven't seen each other for months who want to be in contact, and you're not going to stop a, a bunch of college kids from congregating, having parties, and doing all of those things. And I think Howard just came out today with their new plan, which is going to be virtual for undergraduate students um, and non-residential, and I think that's important. I mean, we all recognize that universities have a desire to get back to normalcy, but these are not normal times. And certainly, uh, we want to be able to provide students with the best education possible. I would encourage people to not think of online as some sort of less good variety of teaching. It's just a different modality. Nonetheless, um, you have to think about the kids first, the students first. And if any of your conversation has an acceptable loss calculation as part of it, we've already failed as institutions of higher education. So I hope more institutions start thinking about these things um, and thinking about the health of the students, um, especially because we know that these are young adults. And as much as we want to police behavior, when we think about students with off-campus housing or even on an on-campus environment, we're not going to sit there and lock students away in their rooms and tell them they can't socialize or they can't go off campus and do whatever else they do. And I just think it's a really um, bad recipe for all the negative outcomes because we know it only takes one student with a disease that's this highly infectious um, to make a whole campus community sick. And then it's not just the students. It's the staff that have to clean, right? It's the food service workers. It's all of the other um, folks who have to come in contact, faculty and, and others who who come in contact with these folks. And this is, uh, universities are just petri dishes and recipes for disaster. I think, um, you know, what Howard has done and what some other institutions have done um, is put students over profit. And I know there are a lot of people who would like to be back on campus. They want the experience and they want all of that. But what is the point of opening an institution if you're killing the people that work there and killing the people that you're supposed to be there to provide this education for? And I think, you know, moving to in camp on campus, in-person classes is just a recipe uh, for disaster. Um, look, th th this is a concern for every <laughs> single parent, Derek, uh, because look, you don't know. And again, if you talk about already inadequate resources compared from suburban districts to school, to inner city school districts, you definitely about to see that right now when it comes to health.
Absolutely. And, you know, I sat a couple of weeks ago, I sat on a call um, for the school district uh, for my son because I wanted to find out what they were doing and all that kind of stuff. And that's where my, you know, I really found out what a lot of these different school systems were doing. And again, when you talk about those disadvantaged communities and some of these disadvantaged students, they need the FaceTime. However, given this COVID, we got to do virtual. So I'm dealing with a uh, rising senior in high school, and then I have a daughter who's a rising junior who's part of University of Maryland, University of Maryland College system. And so we, you know, she's going back in a couple of weeks. And so a lot of their classes are going to be virtual. They're going to do a combination of virtual and in class. So I'm a little leery of the whole thing, but as a parent, I don't know what we can do at this point. I got a niece who just went back to NC State. They go, they're full, they're 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 all full board going straight ahead in terms of uh, what they're doing down there. So each one of these universities, each one of these different school districts all have different plans. And I think the onus falls back on the parents in terms of what we feel comfortable with and where we feel comfortable sending our child at this point. And, and, and right now, man, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with a whole lot of this stuff that's going on, but I mean, what can we do at this point? Rob. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's be, we got here and I have to remind everybody because we have such pay, uh, poor leadership. Every other country has 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 pretty much re- has came back and be responded back on the leadership. because because <laughs> they dealt with a global it. pandemic they, that happens they, they once dealt in a century. With <laughs> you know, like and so they dealt with it. We decided that we weren't going to deal with it. We decided that we were going to have a state specific approach and. Trump wasn't going to do anything. Everybody do their own thing. Some people just said, well, we're not going to do it. Some people took it seriously. Some didn't. And so we had a lack of a, we didn't have a coordinated response and lie, and literally lives were lost. But here's the thing. You have all these folks talking about the economy. They've caused more damage to the economy because they had this half-ass opening that shouldn't, they shouldn't have opened. They opened too early. They didn't take precautions. And that did more damage to the economy because now people have less faith. And so when things actually do get safe, there's going to be a lag time. And that's all due to a lack of leadership. And so but this those, is why it matters who's right in office. There, it matters. I would say, Rob, a lot, a lot of that is opinion. A lot of people had to get back to work. The, so they had the to open up the economy because everybody no, couldn't we, stay at home. So I think a lot of times when we talk, talk about that, what's happening right now with Monday morning quarterbacking. This is the first time we've ever had to deal with a global pandemic. And so when you start talking about what this administration did and what they didn't do, we also have to have to remember when this thing kicked off, when this thing kicked off in January and February, every network was carrying impeachment trials because they wanted to get get, uh, get Trump out of the office. And so okay, I think that I think a lot of people dropped the ball on this thing right, initially but no, but because the we were focused on impeachment. Hold on a second. Why is it though? Why is it that every other nation in the in the world is able to get through I it, can't but not speak us? To every other it's nation. Every other nation is not though. the United it's, States. It's, it's, it's not opinion. It's because we decided that we weren't going to take it seriously. We didn't have a coordinated response. We we did not, and that caused lives and that caused economic damage. And you have governors that followed this idiot's lead, and they and they and they and they opened up the economies too early, and they caused a lot of damage to people. And and so, to, and I want to I want to make one other point. You said that other people had to get back to work. No, that's a lack of a government response. The response the government should have had, they should have covered workers during this time because they, the, the workers didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing they could do. That's what a what a good government response looks like. We didn't have that. Well, that's what everybody didn't want that solution. But that solution but wasn't for everybody. Some people want to get back to work. Dr. Carter, Dr. Carter, 
No, I just think this idea that people don't want it, who cares? This is a public health event. Who cares what people want? People don't want controls on their guns. People don't want to wear seatbelts. People don't want to do a lot of things that they do every single day. So this idea that we couldn't do anything other than what we did is nonsense. And now we're in a situation that if we've done what we were supposed to do in February, in March, in April, kids might be able to actually go back to school right now, and parents may actually feel a little more comfort in sending their children out into the world. Some of those same parents who work at those same institutions, because it's not just the kids going back to schools, it's the teachers, it's the school nurses, it's the the lunch ladies, it's the counselors, it's the principals, it's a whole ecosystem inside of a school building every single day that makes that place go. So if we had done what we were supposed to do, and it would have been hard, nobody is not saying that it wouldn't be challenging, but it wouldn't be any more difficult or challenging than what we're facing right now, is potentially sending our kids off to get a fatal illness. I don't think this... anybody prefers that. Final comment on this. Go ahead, Derek. I was just going to say, it's real easy for us to sit back months later to say what we should have done and what we could have done. And that's what I always say. If ifs and buts was candy and nuts, nobody would be we hungry. And so it's just easy to sit back and say what we should have done, we could have done, all those kind of things. Not just in this country, but around the world telling you what you could actually do to mitigate okay. this virus, and we chose not to do it. So nobody is saying ifs, ands, or buts. The public health information has been consistent for months. We chose to do something else. And just say that and realize we got to live with the choices we did not make. All right, folks, uh, let's go to our next story. We told you the other day about the story of a Louisiana black man who is in, who's going to be in prison for life for trying, for attempting to steal some hedge clippers. He was, of course, convicted under the habitual offender law there in Louisiana. Well, he got bad news, but this next guy got great news. A Gulf War veteran, his name is Derek Harris, who was convicted for selling $30 worth of marijuana, has been resentenced to nine years, which he has already served. Originally, in Louisiana, Harris was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Earlier this year, Promise of Justice Initiative, uh, led by Cormac Boyle, argued before the Louisiana Supreme Court that Harris's sentence was unconstitutional. Joining us right now is Cormac Boyle, staff attorney, the Promise of Justice Initiative. Uh, Cormac, how you doing? Hi, how are you doing? Uh, doing great. I, I, I came across this story uh, because uh, the gentleman in question, Derek Harris, is actually the brother of a friend of mine who uh, I, well, I play golf with, uh, Antoine Harris. And you read this story, how in the world did he get life in prison without parole for $30 worth of marijuana? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, unfortunately, um, the, the, is, is, as you pointed out with Mr. Bryant's case, not an anomaly. And a lot of the problem really is that, um, Louisiana has overzealous prosecutors and underfunded and overworked public defenders. And Mr. Harris, Harris's public defender, unfortunately, was not uh, very attentive to Mr. Harris. He failed to communicate a plea deal uh, prior to trial. He failed to present a entrapment defense, which was very viable at trial. And then he failed to um, point out to the court that uh, the court should and must, in Mr. Harris's circumstance, 
uh, deviate downward from the life without parole sentence based upon Mr. Harris's background and the fact that uh, he's far from uh, the worst of the worst offender, and this is far from the worst of the worst offense. But, but, but this is the kind of stuff we keep talking about when you look at these southern states, when you look at a place like Louisiana. And here's the other deal. You're a state that's broke as hell. Like, what? In, in what world would you say, yeah, it's a notch in my belt to put somebody in prison for life for $30 of marijuana? And this is a young guy. You're talking about you're going to spend, in the same case of the other gentleman, you're going to spend more than a million dollars to imprison somebody for $30. Absolutely. I mean, it, the, the law itself, uh, the habitual offender law itself, is also um, disproportionately applied to black people. Uh, we believe 80% of the people doing uh, habitual offender sentences at Angola are African American, something that, that our state really has to address. And I, I really don't think the government should have the right to use such a draconian law until it figures out how it can apply it in an equitable manner that is reasonable and, and not so destructive to our society. But still, what, but, but even when it comes to these laws, I, I frankly find these laws stupid and idiotic. I do. Because, first of all, if, if you got, if you committed a crime and you got sentenced, you serve your time for that crime. If you committed a second crime and got sentenced, you serve your time. What this law does, this law says, we're going to basically re-sentence you for all of your past transgressions, including this one. That, I don't understand how that is legal. Absolutely. And when these laws started again gaining favor in the 90s, uh, you know, three strikes law, uh, a lot of people did challenge it uh, on the basis of it violating double jeopardy. Uh, and uh, no court has uh, held that. But I absolutely agree. I mean, what we're doing is what we're not supposed to be doing. You're supposed to punish people for what they did, not who they are. And this law, I believe, goes into punishing people not for what they did, but for who they are, and ultimately is a repunishment of prior behavior. Uh, it, it is. It is. What was Derek's response uh, once y'all told him? Uh, and um, when when does he actually walk out? Sure. Uh, well, Derek and I have been, you know, talking about the possibilities for a while. Um, and, um, you know, when I told him, I, I think Derek, you know, he has been treated so poorly that his uh, level of optimism, uh, I would say, um, is, you know, he's a little shaky until he sees himself released. He's not going to believe it. And I understand that completely. It's our expectation that Derek will be released on Monday uh, or possibly Tuesday. Uh, I'm going to be continuing to fight with the DOC over uh, some odds and ends on time calculations. Uh, as soon as he is released, uh, we will be there to pick him up. And, uh, and when we can get things sorted out, uh, get him over to his brother Antoine in, uh, in Kentucky. Um, you talked about, again, these laws and... And, and, and how they impact uh, people of color. The fact that 80% of the people 
in Louisiana jails who have been designated under this law. 80% of those people are black. Eight, 80% of those people are black under, under this law. Yes. I mean, that, that, that's just astonishing, and it speaks to the racial disparity. Without a doubt. I mean, I, I think uh, it's, it, you know, you have a system which uh, you, can't, you can't argue that it's not um, racist uh, when, when, it, when it's so unevenly applied. And, and you know, part of that is because uh, in Louisiana, as in many states, uh, poor people, and particularly African-American people, are over-policed. And when you're over-policed, you're going to get arrested, you're going to get convicted, and they're going to, you know, put all these convictions together and give you uh, an enormous sentence, like a life sentence. And, you know, it's completely untethered from a practical purpose. Cormac Boyle, uh, we appreciate all of your work on this. Uh, also, folks, um, there's a GoFundMe that's been set up to help Derek reestablish himself. Go to my iPad, please. Uh, it's under Bring Derek Harris Home. They, they, the goal is to raise $10,000. They raised thus far $650. If you go to GoFundMe.com, if you just simply type in uh, Bring Derek, Bringing Derek Harris Home, uh, he is a veteran. He is a veteran, uh, and um, so he served during the Gulf War, uh, folks. Uh, so if you go, go to gun, go, GoFundMe, and if you want to assist, uh, please do so. Cormac Boyle, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, Niambi, this is, you know, when, when, when you see stories like this, when, when, when people try to suggest that those of us who talk about this unequal criminal justice system are wrong, this is a perfect example. It, in, in no way in the world, he, he, here we're now dealing with states in this nation where folks are making billions of dollars off of marijuana. In fact, the first payment in the state of Illinois when they uh, made marijuana sales legal, the first month, $52 million in sales. This brother could have served life in prison $30 of marijuana. Yeah, and you know what's really perverse is that now that this um, industry is a thing, because of this conviction, he will never be able to, say, work in that industry. And I think that's what's happened to a lot of people um, who've been ensnared in this criminal injustice system, for lack of a better word, which is something, some small indiscretion has made your whole life null and void. And so because we have so many private entities that are making money off of corrections and imprisonment, um, it makes it a much more attractive process than, you know, using some real discretion here and say, what's happening with this man? In this case, um, with Mr. Harris, I mean, he had PTSD after uh, his military service. Let's address that. Instead, we, we condemn him to, to life imprisonment for essentially nothing. Right. No one was hurt here. And I think this way in which we don't discern um, is is really uh, if we're doing another kind of violence. Right. We, we assume that those who commit crimes or whatever transgress against the public, that they're now outside of us 
But I think when we start thinking of these people as citizens just like us, as people with communities and families, then it makes it easier to understand why these things are so unjust and why calls now for defunding the police and other things are um, reaching this fever pitch because there were alternatives, right? Um, if we had thought more critically about these kinds of laws to imprisonment. And I think when we are considering the moment we're in right now, we have ultimately got to rethink what we do with these prisons. Um, and, you know, while some are calling for abolition of prisons, others are calling for <laughs> the removal um, of private monies, um, for profit uh, prisons. We have to think about that these are actual people there. And how do we talk about, how we talk about these people, how we legislate about their lives matters because one of the things, I mean, going back to this theme of the show, we certainly do count those who are in prison in the communities where uh, they're being held for redistricting purposes, right? So prisoners are important for a lot of different kinds of people. And so some of these, say, more rural communities or communities that don't have as much population, um, prison makes sense for them because prisons have lots of bodies in them that they can use to be overrepresented in our national body. This here, Derek, is when, you know, people talk about, obviously, the First Step Act on the federal level, but the reality is this here. Of the 2.3 million people who are in prison in the United States, 10% are only on the federal level. The real impact on mass incarceration has to take place on the state level. And this is one of those things where Democrats and Republicans, you would think folks who talk about being pro-life and those other people who talk about, uh, you know, ending mass incarceration can come to an agreement that these type of laws, these type mm -hmm. of laws, enough of this law and order bullshit, enough of this whole, you know, I need to look all tough. It makes no sense to tell somebody, yeah, you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison because you tried to sell $30 of marijuana. Dude, I, I, I read that story. First of all, I know it's Derek Harris. I was like, make sure it wasn't my Derek Harris. All right, but, dude, life in prison for a $30, $30 bag of weed, I was like, wow. But I'm going to put a different spin on it. Now, this law that had him locked up, that was part of the large, that crime bill that was passed in 1994 that was authored by who? Mr. Joe Biden. This is so, a state law. This is a state law. Okay. Is, it, is that not part of the crime bill, though? No, 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 no. This no. is a state law. No, no. The 19, the, the, hold on, no, hold on. Factually, the 1994, the 1994 crime bill is a federal correct. law. This, okay, this, this is a state law. I stand corrected. The bottom line is everything that y'all said was true. Dude, he got life in prison for a $30 bag of weed. And I think, as you said, Democrat or Republican, that don't make sense. But as the doctor said just now, everything that she said was true, too. These prisons have a population that is very useful for a lot of different reasons. And so some of it's political, some of it, some of it's not. But man, that that right there, that that makes no sense. And that's something like that has to be changed. I feel so sorry for that brother and what happened to him. Rob, but, uh, Rob, Rob, go ahead. Yeah, the system is not broken, it's working as it was designed to. It's working to disenfranchise people. It's working to take away the power of people. This is why it applies disproportionately to black Americans. Uh, it was, it was, these laws were put, these are, these are revisionist laws from like right after reconstruction. And they, we've now, this is our third kind of 
morphing of discrimination in this country. We had obviously slavery, then we had Jim Crow, then we had mass incarceration, and we had these laws pretending to be strong on law and order. What they really were was just thinly thinly veiled disguises of ways to discriminate against us, to put us in prison, and to find sure. ways to disenfranchise us. It's not only putting us in prison, it's disenfranchising us afterwards, making it hard to, and, some, and sometimes you can't vote, making it hard to actually get a job. But at, as the doctor said, as Dr. Naomi Carter said, we still use those bodies. They still use those bodies for profit. Yeah. Profits are made in prison. And, and, and we still I, use those bodies. We still use those bodies for counting representation so people have power while taking away power from those communities. So these these things are done strategically. And what we got to get people to understand is that, look, this is where Derek and I agree. Democrats and Republicans own this system together. And we have to make sure we fight <laughs> that hard, hard and make sure that when we get we get people in power that say they back us. They need to do everything possible to dismantle this, and it will be hard for them to do that because we know how the power strip, uh, system is, is is designed in this country. But again, if we as if we as Democrats, people that are supporting Democrats, we need to hold them accountable. Republicans need to step up too because they say they believe in pro life, they believe in justice. Hey, Republicans, make us work like make make Democrats work for the vote. Go out and do this stuff. Instead, they don't do that. I, I would love to see a time when Republicans were actually championing these things, fighting for these things, and making folks have to question uh, who who do we align with, who do we support. I want to see that. We don't see it right now. Though. Well, well, especially when you have people like Attorney General Bill Barr who say it's just so unfortunate that Roger Stone should have to go to prison. He's 67, first-time offender, and so uh, let's just go ahead and give him uh, a pardon or commutation, whatever the hell he got, but you don't see the same capacity for other people. I want to reach out to this here, the last item on this story. This is from theappeal.org. Uh, they cover a lot of criminal justice stuff. Under Louisiana's habitual offender statute, a district attorney can file to have a person's punishment enhanced based on their criminal history. In hmm. 2011, Bernard Noble was sentenced to 13 years in prison after he was arrested in wow. New Orleans for possessing two <laughs> marijuana joints because of prior drug convictions. Right. Noble, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Noble served seven years and was granted an early release in 2016. Jaco oh my God. In 2016, <laughs> Jacobia Grimes faced 20 years to life for allegedly stealing $31 worth of candy bars from Dollar General store in New Orleans after Orleans Parish DA Leon. Canazaro charged him under the habitual offender statute. The case received national attention and Grimes later entered a guilty plea in which he was sentenced to two years in prison. Y'all, he was sentenced to two years in prison for stealing $31 of candy. Now, yeah, now, for everybody watching, I need you to understand this is how voting comes in. Go back to the iPad. The key is this. The person who determines whether to use the habitual offender statute is the district attorney. So, this is why DAs matter. This is why Aramis Ayala in Florida matters. Larry Krasner in Philadelphia matters. Kim Fox in Chicago matters. This is why Marilyn Mosby matters. This is why Kim Gardner 
matter. This is why this is why Wesley and St. Louis matter. When you have district attorneys who will sit there and say, okay, this is stupid. Because remember, y'all, the DA in Louisiana does not have to invoke this statute. They are choosing to invoke yeah. this statute. Yeah. That is a huge, huge difference. And so I just want people to understand that. Now, here's the other deal. In 2018, they did have some reform of this deal. It actually was signed into law by Democratic Governor John Bill Edwards on June 15th, uh, 2017. This says, under reform of the statute, a fourth offense resulted in a maximum of 20 years in prison. And so uh, the law so the law was changed. And so one of the things, so the reason Derek is getting out, and even the reason why the Louisiana Supreme Court heard the other case was because they both petitioned to have their cases reviewed as a result of this particular law. Frankly, this reform still hasn't gone far enough because I'm sorry. I don't care if somebody had three prior offenses. If you steal $31 in candy, you shouldn't be yep. slapped with 20 years in prison. I, 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 I got to go to commercial break. We come back. Folks, we'll talk about um, viral ads. That's next on Roller Martin Unfiltered. You want to support Roller Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Donald Trump is 74 years old and he has never faced any consequences. When Donald Trump was called to serve in Vietnam, his powerful father used his money to buy his privileged son five separate deferments. But what about the kids who weren't rich? And what poor kids without a rich father had to take Donald Trump's place five times on the battlefield? When Donald Trump repeatedly lied to the American people about the coronavirus... I think that at some point uh, that's going to sort of just disappear. ...deliberately spreading lies that caused over 155,000 Americans to die agonizing deaths alone. Not one single doctor ever stood up in the White House briefing room and had the courage to say, do not listen to the president. He is lying to you. Instead, they praised him. He's been so attentive to the scientific literature and the details and the data. When Donald Trump bragged on camera about sexually assaulting women, it should have immediately ended his presidential campaign and he should have faced criminal charges. But instead, his third wife, so desperate to be the first lady, rushed to cover for him. I know how some men talk. They were kind of a, a boy talk. When Donald Trump had multiple bankruptcies, he should have lost his businesses and suffered the same consequences everyone else would have. But instead, corrupt banks like Deutsche Bank stepped in to rescue him, perpetuating the false image that Trump was rich and successful. When Donald Trump cheated on his wife and had unprotected sex with porn stars, his daughter refused to even say it was wrong. I think it's a pretty inappropriate question to ask a daughter. When it was revealed that Vladimir Putin had put bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers and that Donald Trump knew about it and did nothing to defend the United States, he should have been impeached and removed from office. But instead, his army of enablers defended him. Time and time again, people have stepped in and covered for Donald Trump. 
For 74 years, Donald Trump has gotten away with one crime after another. But on November 3rd, you can take away Donald Trump's power. And when he's not President Trump, he will have to face charges for the crimes he's committed. On November 3rd, you're the jury in the case of the people versus Donald Trump. It's up to you. Trump donors, times are tough. After destroying the economy, the U.S. economy contracted a record-shattering 32.9% last quarter, causing massive death. More than 150,000 people have died of the coronavirus in the U.S. Trump is begging you for money, and begging, and begging to support Don Jr.'s girlfriend and Eric's wife, his hotels, Ferraris for his campaign managers, golden toilets for Jared and Ivanka. He defrauded a cancer charity. He bankrupted casinos, his companies, a fake university, our country. Don't be Don's next con. Midas Touch is responsible for the content of this advertising. Governor confirming that coronavirus has arrived here. When we were stuck inside, we wondered, would we face the plague of gun violence again? Will we fear gathering in our schools and our churches again? Will we be shot for the color of our skin again? But a fight for justice forced us out to fill the empty streets. Black Americans are still being killed for being black in America. The pandemic hitting black, indigenous, and people of color disproportionately has only worsened the epidemic of gun violence in those same communities. Because it's clear the fight for racial justice is still on, and we won't live without it. In Colorado, he stood against hatred, but in Wisconsin, he carried a Confederate flag. In Arizona, she stood for her patience, but in Michigan, she carried a swastika. They bought guns in record numbers, but we took it to the streets. So when we leave our homes this time, will the people carrying weapons of war and banners of hatred decide our future again? Or will we stand up and demonstrate our power? Our power means we demand all gun sales will be licensed. Our power means we demand weapons of war be banned for good. Our power means lawmakers must listen. Our power means we refuse to watch black people be murdered in the streets. Our power means we refuse to fear for our lives. We refuse to live without justice. It's our power and we will use it. Keep the faith and keep our eyes 
on the grind. We must continue to push. We must continue to work. We may have come here on different ships, but we all are in the same boat now. But it doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Latino, Asian American, or Native American, whether we're gay or straight, we're one people, we're one family, we all live in the same house, not just the American house, but the world house. The world house. I got to add one more because I got to get uh, our panel. I know, Derek, I know you have to go. Uh, it's your wife's birthday. Uh, ho hopefully you got her something good. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yesterday, Don Trump was in Cleveland. It was supposed to be a White House event. He turns it into a rally. And he questioned Joe Biden's faith. Watch this. Things that nobody ever would ever think even possible because he's following the radical left agenda. Take away your guns. Destroy your Second Amendment. No religion, no anything. Hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God, he's against guns. He's against energy, our kind of energy. Uh, I don't think he's going to do too well in Ohio. If things that nobody ever would ever think even... Derek, Joe Biden has enough power he can hurt God? That's the part he can hurt God. Is that what he said? He's literally said Joe Biden. Joe Biden is gonna hurt God. Uh, no, I don't know where that came from. I don't know where that came from. But I will say this: he's Trump. in Ohio. And Rob, you you in Ohio? And, and we Ohio. say this all the time when I'm kidding around with my friends. I'm like, you know, one thing what people got to realize when it comes down to this election, November third. All right. So once you leave Atlanta, you in Georgia. Once you leave Cincinnati, you in Ohio. And a lot of times, you know, these opinions that we talk about, they come from, well, I would say a lot of times, bi-coastal and urban elitist. And so there's a whole group of Americans who don't necessarily agree with everything that is said on this show. Well, it, well, yeah, but here's the deal. It's, it's a hell of a whole lot who do agree. And trust me, there are white folks who agree as well. And the thing here, Rob, when you have a fool stand up talking about Joe Biden gonna, is going to hurt God, <laughs> you know what? Since you know, I, I, I you know, and, and I just wanted, I, I just wanted, you know, while while we were playing that, I, I just want to remind y'all of this. Talking about how it's your favorite book, and you said, I think last night in Iowa, some people are surprised that you say that. I'm wondering what one or two of your most favorite. Bible uh, verses are well, and why. I, I wouldn't want to get into it because to me that's very personal. You know, when I talk about the Bible, it's very personal. So I don't want to get into there's verses. No, there's I don't no want to get into. There's no, no I, verse I, that means I a lot to you that you think about or cite. The, the Bible means a lot to me, but I don't want to get into specifics. Even to cite a verse that no, you like. No, I don't want to do that. You're I mean, an Old okay. Testament guy or a New Testament guy? Uh, probably equal. I think it's <laughs> just an incredible. The whole Bible is an incredible. I joke. Uh, very much so. They always hold up the art of the deal. I say my second favorite book of all time. But uh, I just think the Bible is just something very special. Okay. You mentioned the Bible. You've been talking. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have no Bible verse. Neon, but he literally said, Old Testament, New Testament. Oh, probably equal. 
Yeah, he, he has no acquaintance with that Bible, so I don't even know why he is perpetrating that fraud. But I will also have people remember, and I will always say this, you can believe whatever you want, right? That's part of the Constitution. You can follow whatever religion you want, but the state does not have the right to establish said religion. And I think we have to always keep that in mind, that the, the framers that we like to pull out every time we want to talk about something, um, we're very cautious of religion, in particular state-run religion or state-promoted religion. So we should always be keep that in mind when we're talking about leaders and their faith, right, that there is a, a separation between those two things, and there ought to be, um, in, in the framers' minds at least. And I think for many people who are non-religious or who are non-Christian, right, that we don't actually want that to be a thing. And Donald Trump is about as religious as a box of hair. I, I just got robbed, but I got to play this one last one for you. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Derek, this is still so special for somebody who just loves and adores the Bible so much that they can't even talk about their favorite verse, this is probably why. Yeah, some of the folks, because I hear this is a major theme right here, but 2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 3.17, that's the whole ballgame. Where the Spirit of the Lord, right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, Anthony. there is liberty. And here there is Liberty College, but Liberty University, but it is so true. You know, when you think, and that's really... Is that the one? Is that the one you like? I think that's the one you like, because I loved it. Oh, and it's so representative <laughs> of what's taken place. But we are going to protect Christianity. And if you look what's going on throughout the world, you look at Syria. I asked some of the folks, because I hear this is a major theme right here, but 2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 3.17. That's the whole ballgame. <laughs> Rob, Rob, he literally told somebody, Find me a Bible verse that got liberty in it. <laughs> and this fool went up there and said, two Corinthians. You, I, I, there's no church I've ever been to where they've ever said, uh, brothers and sisters, could you please turn to uh, 2 Corinthians <laughs> chapter 3, verse 17. There's one. There's one rolling the Trump of the the, the Trump of church uh, the, of Trump. You know, that's his. That's his. He's a. He's got his own church apparently. Maybe he's going to start Trump Church after this because if you want to protect <laughs> Christianity, you need to get rid of Donald Trump. He's the biggest threat to Christianity we've ever seen. And, and this is what I want to say for all these folks that are. Uh, Bible toting that are just behind Donald Trump and they don't care that he's cheated on his wife. They don't care that he says he's assaulted women. They don't care that he cusses all the time. That tells me they don't care about everything they say that they do. So I look, I don't want to hear it when there's a Democratic president who will say, oh my gosh, uh, they don't have a morality. Like you, you back Donald Trump. You no longer have credibility in telling me something about your religion. And so like they are, they are selling out to me people that are backing this man and just ignoring his moral failings because they are clear and present for anybody to see. And Republicans, every Republican that's not in power sees that and says that, that's not looking for something from him, almost says that. People that don't have to depend on him. So he is actually doing more damage to Christianity because people are saying, look, if that I'm a Christian, but I can see if people are like, if that's a Christian, that's what I don't want to be. If you're saying if that's the religion that, they, that he's following, like, I don't see what any anything he stands for, locking up children, putting them away, having no empathy, having no sympathy. Like, none of those things align with the Bible. The Bible is about grace. The Bible is about love. Nobody in their right mind would, would, would use those words to describe Trump. 
You wouldn't use grace. You wouldn't use love. You would use none of those things if we're being honest about it. Derek, but Derek, instead, this tells me they have a they have a higher value. It is not about religion. It's about something else. Derek, I, I know you got to go. I'm gonna give you the final comment on this one. The bro somebody put this on Twitter. They said, "Well, Second Corinthians is acceptable depending upon the way you preach." Watch this. <laughs> Three seventeen. Hold on, hold on. Two Corinthians. <laughs> Three seventeen. Instead of the conventional American way of Second Corinthians. Three seventeen. <laughs> As a priest trolling Trump, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> trying to figure it out. <laughs> he goes to Corinthians <laughs> as opposed to the acceptable way of 2 <laughs> Corinthians. That was his way of saying the person in the Oval Office is a religious idiot. <laughs> All this is that there are many interpretations of the Bible. No, 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 no. There's NIV, there's the King James, there's the ASV, there's the message. They're all in every single one. It ain't two Corinthians. <laughs> I don't know which version that was. I had to go look that one up, man. I don't know. <laughs> you can do a drive-by a church and know it's not two Corinthians. <laughs> I gotta look which version that came from, man. I can't speak on it. <laughs> Derek, go on. Derek, be with your wife on her birthday. Go on. Go on. Go on. Just sign up. Just, just, week, just cut it off like you did last week. Just go on. <laughs> go on. Gone. I'm out. I talked to you. Gone. Y'all go ahead and run that Don Wins. Y'all go ahead and run the Don Winslow film uh, of uh, Trump fake Christianity. Roll it. Y'all told me y'all had it, and how y'all not ready? I'm. I'm. Very pro-choice. And again, it may be a little bit of a New York background because there is some different attitude in different parts of the country. And, you know, I was raised in New York and grew up and work and everything else in New York City. But you would not ban it? No. Or ban partial birth abortion? No, I would. I would. I am, I am pro-choice in every respect and as far as it goes. Do you believe in punishment for abortion, yes or no, as a principle? There has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. I'm wondering what one or two of your most favored Bible uh, verses are well, and why. I, I wouldn't want to get into it because to me that's very personal. You know, when I talk about the Bible, it's very personal, so I don't want to get into there's verses. No, I don't no want to get into... There's no, no I, verse I, that means I a lot to you that you think about or cite? The, the Bible means a lot to me, but I don't want to get into specifics. Two Corinthians, right? Two Corinthians... Y'all, y'all, Trump is a fake Christian. I mean, that, that hashtag is on the money right there, Dr. Carter. He a fake Christian. That little stunt he pulled, he didn't even know how to hold a Bible. I, 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 this is how he looked. He just got an old used version. Anybody who has held a Bible 
who hold it above their head does not go. No. <laughs> they hold the Bible. They know how to hold it. He... Go ahead. But I was saying, but let's also remember what he did immediately before he snapped that picture, right? He had tear gas those people and um, otherwise used force to move them back so he could take a damn picture in front of a church that he does not attend and clearly with a Bible that he is not very acquainted with. So Donald Trump is here for the pictures. Donald Trump is here to sort of make people believe that he is going to be some sort of beacon of Christianity, perhaps survival of Christianity. He's made them feel that they have a friend in the White House, and in turn, they vote for him in great numbers. And I think Rob's point is exactly right. I don't want to hear about your moral high ground anymore. I don't want to hear about your Christian faith and your morality. This man is on tape talking about he was grabbing women by their private part. And nobody better than I. Right. And you got all these evangelicals to show up at that White House and put their hands on this man and pray over him as if. So I don't want to hear anything about his Christianity. I don't want to hear about the folks who supposedly support him's Christianity, because if you can look at a man who does the things that he does, that says the things that he says and, and creates the discord and the damage that he has created in this country, there are over 150,000 people dead right now that shouldn't be dead. But but, here, but 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 here's the deal, and here's the mistake, Rob, that, that that I really believe progressives make. What progressives do, and and I saw a segment earlier where Matt Schlapp was uh, questioning Joe Biden's faith against Donald Brazil, and what what he did was he, he only framed he only framed the issue of faith and politics within the prism of abortion. Yep. Angela Stanton tried that with me on Twitter the yes other day, and I just mm -hmm. straight up just demolished her ass. Yep. And I said, oh, because she was like, you know, you're supporting a man uh, who, uh, who uh, wants to fund Planned Parenthood. I'm supporting a man who's protecting the innocent unborn and who wants to uh, defund Planned Parenthood. I said, oh, I'm sorry. Are you also supporting the same man who wanted to cut the food subsidies to the poor? Last I checked, that's also what the Bible talks about. I said, are you also supporting the man who actually had the children of folks who crossed the border snatched out of their hands, removed from them, sent those kids to other families, did not document what happened to those children? I said, is that also the Christian way of life? I said, if y'all want to have a discussion about yep. Trump policies and Christianity, we can have that conversation. See, I have long said, white right-wing conservatives and a few black folks who vote with them, they only want to define faith as two things, being against abortion and being against gay folk. That's the yep. only two issues. They don't want to have a discussion about Christianity and about caring for the needy. They don't want to have a conversation about housing and the homeless and the poor. I said, how can you, Angela Stanton, support a man and you use Christianity as the basis of it when he wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, which is health care? I said, with no plan? Oh, but y'all don't want to talk about 
that part of Christianity. See, this is where I keep trying to tell progressives, stop falling for their okey-doke. If y'all want to have a Christian conversation, a faith conversation, I remember when I was on CNN, the night Obama uh, was was going with with, uh, Rick Warren, and we were on the air, and they had uh, Tony Perkins on, Family Research Council. They always want to pull Tony Perkins. And I told CNN, why every time y'all want to talk about faith, y'all always pull this white conservative evangelical out? So they had me against Tony Perkins. And he had the audacity, the unmitigated gall, to bring up Reverend Wright. Uh, as the, He said, well, that's not what Christians are about. I said, oh, I'm sorry, Tony. You want to have a Christian conversation? Last I checked, the real responsibility of Christians is to save souls. I said, you want to have a Sermon on the Mount conversation? Bruh, let's go. See, the real problem is that progressives who are are of the faith, they go on TV and they speak more through the prism of their progressive views as opposed to the prism of their faith. And so my deal is here. I'm not a Republican or Democrat. I'm not a conservative or a liberal, but I can tell you one thing, what I'm not going to do is let these white conservative evangelicals and these black folks like Angela Stanton, Alveda King, and others define faith solely as two issues. Y'all want a faith conversation? Bring it on. Come I mean, on. Because look, because look, Trump, we, we, we talked about COVID exposing America, exposing uh, our weaknesses Trump has exposed Christians to me, some white Christians that say that they're Christians, they believe in these things, and clearly Trump does not. I mean, and clearly, if you see, if you if you listen to the words of Jesus, right, they don't they don't align with anything Trump stands for. Jesus was a disruptor. He turned over tables within the church because they weren't doing what they were supposed to. They weren't looking out for the needy. How do you think he would feel about Trump sitting kids over the border, letting them die? How do you think he would feel about? Uh, taking away health care from people. How do you think he would feel about putting money ahead of the interest of people's health? I mean, we talk, I mean, Jesus is very clear on these things. And so, like, I am not afraid to have these conversations. And I do think people that are, that are of the faith, we accept people that are not. But when it comes down to it, we can't be afraid to have a conversation. We can't be afraid to, to frame our values. And, and we can't let them frame it. Uh, because if they, because if we do, then it looks like, oh, they're the Christians, but they're not. I ain't letting, let, let no white conservative evangelical talk to me about Trump when that man wouldn't even admit to paying off porn stars. I don't want to hear nothing from them about this man in faith when he actually said he saw no reason in his old, whole life where he had to ask God for grace and mercy. You can't find nobody. First of all, Jesus said, I died for your sins. This fool basically said, I ain't got no sins to confess. I'm good. Y'all, he's a fake Christian. Let me be as clear as possible. White conservative evangelicals don't give a damn about the Bible. They don't care about faith. What they care about are tax cuts. What they care about are right-wing federal judges. They don't care about civil rights. They don't care about human rights. And when Matt Schlapp sits there on Fox News talking about what it means to be a Catholic, did Matt Schlapp forget the fact that the Catholic Church also vehemently opposes uh, the death penalty? Who was the one who reinstated the federal death penalty? Donald Trump. Oh, oh, but I thought y'all pro-life. So why'd you reinstate the federal death penalty. 
T. Dr. Carter, that's why I keep telling progressives, stop punking out and letting somebody question your faith. Well, I mean, look, I think it's, it's hard because I think, like you said, the two big issues that people always talk about are, are, are abortion or... No, 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 not people, not people, but, not people. No. White, conservative evangelicals conservative. talk look, about those well, two. We all participate in it because we have limited the conversation to faith of that. Because we let them limit also it. also goes to this larger issue, though, that people aren't ideologically consistent. Right? I say I'm pro-life, but what I really mean is I only care about people having the right to be born. I don't really care about their life once they are born. I certainly don't have responsibility to other people, right? So when we talk about condemning people to the death penalty, that's perfectly fine if I'm a pro-lifer in some cases, right? I don't care about SNAP assistance, right? I don't care about children having somewhere safe to live or having regular access to food, having access to adequate education, all the things that would actually support life, right? Environmental cleanliness, right? I don't care about any of those things because the issue is not about Christianity, bottom line. The issue is about using whatever pool you have to forestall conversation. Because the minute you say, I'm a Christian, particularly to somebody who's not a Christian, right, who can't go Bible verse to Bible verse with you, it makes it very difficult to have a conversation because now I have to question your faith. And usually for many people, even America, it's a non-starter. And I think that's a very easy way to forestall any debate or conversation. Say, oh, it's my religious conviction. If I happen to not share that conviction or that tradition, then we can't actually have a conversation and you can go on being the bigot that you've always and been. And since we on that, that, that Christian university leader of evangelicals <laughs> founded by Reverend Jerry Falwell, y'all seen this photo? This is his son mm-hmm. who leads it. Jerry Falwell Jr. He's an attorney who's not a pastor. He, he takes a photo. He, y'all, let me tell you how dumb this fool is. He actually posted this on Instagram. This is a photo of him pants unzipped with a drink in his hand, standing next to a woman who ain't his wife. Wow. He later came out and said, oh, no, she was pregnant. This was just a photo. Well, this happened right here, y'all. Statement that was announced today. The Executive Committee of Liberty University's Board of Trustees, acting on behalf of the full board, met today and requested that Jerry Falwell, Jr., take an indefinite leave of absence from his roles as president and chancellor of Liberty University, to which he has agreed effective immediately. Well, Rob, how about them Christian values? I mean, yeah, it's just selective. It's when you want to use them, and when you want to use them, particularly as, as, uh, as really, as Dr. Carter said, it's used as a purpose for power. It's used to say, you, we are good people, you are not. And it's often been used for superiority reasons. I mean, there's a reason why there, there have been some, some, some people of African descent that don't want to be associated with Christianity because they see, and it has been used to justify things like slavery and things like that. And we see people use it as a justification for treating people poorly when it's actually the opposite. It's, it's supposed to be to actually uh, to give more to those right. who are given much is required. That is the principle. It's not like, oh, if you got a lot, then you're supposed to use the, you're supposed to, use the religion to hurt other people. So... People just find a way to use the religion to justify yep. the injustices that they uh, that they put upon others. I got to play this. Good people. I, I got to play this. He called into a radio... Y'all, so this happened before he got suspended. Uh, he called into a radio station to explain. It sounded like he was a little tipsy. Mm-hmm. What was up with that picture on Instagram? You know, it was weird because she, she was... 
pregnant, so she couldn't get her she couldn't get her pants up. And so I was like trying to like my I had on a pair of jeans that I haven't worn in a long time, so I couldn't get mine zipped either. And so and so I just put my belly I just put my belly out like hers and it was just um she's my wife's assistant and she's a sweetheart and I should never put it up because it embarrassed her because um anyway. I, I've apologized to everybody and I promise my kids I'm gonna try to be I'm gonna try to be a good boy from here on out. <laughs> All right, so and this is this this T V show, this this Trader Park Boys thing? Yeah, yeah. whatever, whatever. <laughs> it was just the guy it was the costume party on the uh, and we we were on vacation and anyway, long story short, it was just uh just just in good fun. That's it. Mm. Everybody in the club getting tipsy. Look, this is your your university president and allegedly a reverend. He is a charlatan. No, 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 no. He's not a reverend. No, no, no. Hold on. He's not a reverend. Oh, he's not. He's a lawyer. He's not. Okay. His daddy was. He's not. Was the reverend? Well, he's the head of a religious institution. Right. Precisely. Right? That, that makes it all the that makes it the the bar a little bit higher than sort of any other university president. But I guarantee he's going to go to rehab. He's going to come about that he's had these substance abuse issues. He's going to ask people for their thoughts and prayers, and then he's going to be reinstalled. Um, so we know this script. I mean, Jerry Falwell Jr. has tried this with the blackface mask that he did early this year. I mean, he's he brought students back to Liberty's campus in the middle of COVID and got other students sick. I mean, this man has been a disaster, and this is the bridge too far for the Board of Trustees tells me something that I... Uh, tells me everything I need to know about the Board of Trustees at Liberty University, quite frankly. So, it, just, it, you know, everybody, I, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy, I'm sure. Everybody um, in the I'm club getting tipsy. I'm for Jerry Falwell Jr., um, but I guarantee he's going to come out with some statement about he needs to go to rehab yeah. because he has a substance abuse problem, yada, yada. All right. That doesn't explain the racism in the other All right, All right. I got it. I got to go to the next story. Oprah Winfrey and her old magazine team are demanding justice for Breonna Taylor. Winfrey has purchased 26 billboards with the face of Taylor across the city. That's one billboard for every year of her life. Each reads, demand that the police involved in killing Breonna Taylor be arrested and charged, visit untilfreedom.com. <clears throat> now, of course, uh, it's supposed to be expected to be completed by Monday. The officers involved in the death of Breonna Taylor have not been charged. Detective Brett Hankinson was fired, and Sergeant Jonathan Madley and Detective Miles Cosgrove were only placed on administrative leave. Folks, in Virginia, the Virginia man who threatened to burn down a black church play, has, play, play, has played guilty. John, Mac, Mac, John Malcolm Bearswill is facing a maximum of 10 years in prison and a fine of $250,000. He called New Hope Baptist Church after they held a vigil for George Floyd. He made racially charged remarks and threatened to set the church on fire. He denied to police that he made the call, but records show that he did call the church from his mobile phone. You got to have, you got to realize, folks, you got some really <laughs> dumb ass people. In another case of progressives taking on establishment political candidates, Memphis activist Marquita Bradshaw scored a shocking victory in the Democratic Senate primary in Tennessee on yesterday. Folks, her opponent, James Mackler, was the candidate of choice by Chuck Schumer and Democratic Senate leaders. Now, check this out. Y'all gonna love this one. Bradshaw raised $8,200 in the first quarter hasn't even filed a second quarter fundraising report with the Federal Elections Commission. Her opponent, my man, raised $2 million. And, of course, she faces an uphill battle, Dr. Carter, there in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. But with five candidates, she got 35 percent. 
Uh, she dominated, obviously, in Shelby County, where Memphis is. But it has to say something. This is what she said, though. She's, her deal was, don't make this because I'm black. She's also a big-time organizer. And what she said is, they organize people in different parts of the state. She came out on top 35%. The guy who Chuck Schumer, who they wanted, a former Army uh, vet, he came in third. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, look, if AOC hasn't shown anybody anything, is that it really matters to beat the pavement. So you can have all the endorsements you want. But at the end of the day, it was about who you can compel to show yep. up. And let's be clear, Chuck Schumer is from New York. What does he know about Tennessee? And why do the people of Tennessee care? I think it'll be really interesting to see how this general election shakes out, because I was thinking immediately of Harold Ford when he ran in 2006. And I think um, I think she'll have an uphill battle because, you know, Tennessee is a red state. They have two Republican senators right now. So it'll be curious. But I think the fact that she was able to upset um, people, uh, the other candidate, Mackler, who was clearly the favorite going in this race and had outspent uh, her and certainly out-fundraised um, her, says something. There's clearly an appetite for something different on the horizon. And I think her environmental justice uh, stuff was was interesting, not just to black folks, but to, to whites. And if she's going to win in Tennessee, she's absolutely going to have to win um, the wider parts of the state. Uh, here is a video of Marquita responding to her shocking win. It's time for us to move towards the future and lay racism to bed so we can move into the ingenuity and creativity that we all deserve as Americans working together. My name is Marquita Bradshaw and I am the Democratic nominee. No, we did it. This was not Marquita by herself. No. With less than $25,000, we beat a million dollar budget because people lent their resources and worked their networks. Grassroots organizing along with the proper budget is going to flip this U.S. Senate seat and make history. Look, I know, I know it's a red state, Rob, but if I'm Republicans, I have a problem with somebody spending $8,200 and getting 35% of the vote, vote <laughs> yep, yep. And, and beating beating the dude who raised $2 million. Yep, and that tells you something, too. It should, when people say their vote doesn't matter, this is an example. They say there's too much money in politics. Some of that is true, but this shows you you can overcome it. She had basically no money to millions of dollars, and she wiped the floor with him. And so we we can take our democracy back. And even in these so-called red states, you know, Obama won Indiana, home of the KKK in 2008. So, like, anything is possible if we're willing to come out, work, organize, and make sure our voices are heard. All right. Rob and Niamh, we appreciate it. Thanks so very much for joining us this week. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks. Time for this uh, brought to you by Ask Me. We can face this pandemic head on. We can do what it takes to protect our families and our communities. 
Together, we can get our economy moving again, but not without the tools and resources we need to get the job done. To win this fight, it is going to take a public service army. Don't let Congress fire the frontline workers who can save us. Text FUND to 237263 to tell Congress to fund the front lines. All right, folks, we surely appreciate asking for being a partner here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, folks, uh, it's time for us to go. Uh, don't forget to support what we do by joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Let me give a shout out uh, to, uh, let's see here, Paul, Paul Patterson, you sent something, Paul? Let me see, check this out. Uh, Paul sent us, um, sent us a donation. Uh, what did Paul say? Paul said, thank you for the truth in every subject you talk about. The fact is what matters being in Ohio, races are not hitting no more Trump unleash uh, on this country. And he says, why do these people follow his every word? Great point, Paul. We actually uh, wanted the exact same thing. Also, shout out to uh, Chance Taylor. Uh, also, uh, a contributor. Uh, let's see here. Uh, this is Jerome Hale. Jerome Hale. Uh, Jerome, I'll give you a shout out as well. Thank you so very much uh, for joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Let me uh, open up this here. Uh, this is Chandler Lowry. Chandler Lowry, we appreciate it. Uh, Chandler, thank you so very much. Uh, all of y'all, don't forget uh, you can support us via Cash App, PayPal, or Venmo as well. Uh, and so we certainly appreciate that. Uh, Ralph Taylor, thanks a bunch. Please find the enclosed check for 50 bucks to support the Bring the Funk uh, fan club. Your organization gives a sorely needed voice to the black community. Although I may not always agree with your tactics, it seems I'm in good company sometimes. The dialogue that your shows engender is vitally necessary to address our issues. Well, guess what? That's what we gonna keep doing. Cause see, somebody got the swing on them, Ralph. And then I ain't afraid of none of them. I'm just letting you know right now. Uh, shout out here to um, Ariana Neptune. Love your show. I have learned so much valuable information. Your guest content and history classes are excellent. Continue the good work. I have told my son and grandsons about your show. P.S. Your journalism skills are superb. Enjoy your show. We appreciate you supporting us uh, as well. Just a couple of more folks before we go. Uh, for the weekend here. Let's see here. Uh, Johnny Hill. Johnny Hill. Uh, thank you for joining our fan club. Uh, I'm going to see if there's one more note somewhere in here. Uh, you know, I read some of these um, notes uh, on the air just to give y'all, you know, a sense of what people say about our, our show. Uh, let's see here. Keep up the great work. This is uh, Melvin Booker. Melvin Booker. I appreciate it, Melvin. Thanks a bunch. Uh, I got two uncles named uh, Melvin. Let's see here. Uh, let's see. Let me try to... Man, y'all got... When y'all put tape on the back, y'all make it hard for a brother to get in. All right, let's see here. We got a long letter here. Uh, let's see here. Who is this from? This is from Chance Taylor. Uh, let's see here. Mr. Martin, thank you for the platform informing black people. Could you interview, could you bring more light on the writings of Dr. Gerald Horn? Trust me, we've got uh, a couple of interviews with him coming about his book, and so we're going to have that up real soon. Again, folks, cash app, dollar sign, RM Unfiltered, paypal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered, venmo.com forward slash RM Unfiltered. You can go to rollermartinunfiltered.com, use, use the uh, uh, square for credit card. If you want to send in a money order, make it out to New Vision Media Inc. NU Vision Media 
Media Inc., 1625 K Street Northwest, Suite 400, Washington, D.C., 2006. If you want to, if you mail a package to us, be sure to put my name on it along with New Vision Media because so, I had an issue at the post office today uh, because my business card has a show name, not my corporate name, New Vision Media. But luckily, the sister who was the supervisor there, she supports our show. Uh, she was like, yeah. That's Roland Give him the package. So we appreciate that. Thanks a bunch, folks. Uh, we always end the show rolling the list of our charter members. We had 10,600. Our goal is to have 20,000 of our fans supporting us. 50 bucks each by the end of the year. Uh, if, you're on, if you're on YouTube, you can give right there. There are, two, there are more than 2,400 of you watching right now. Y'all can give right there. Your dollars make all of this possible, okay? All right, folks. I'm going to see y'all uh, on Monday. Enjoy the weekend. Ho! I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today.